Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Mark Schladorn, and I'm an elder here at Cross Point Coast Pineda. Just setting my stopwatch. Um, and Jeremiah, our um, lead pastor, is in Cross Point downtown today, and uh, he'll be preaching there. And throughout the summer, as we go through this uh, series in Proverbs, um, you'll see different people up here, both elders and other Cross Point pastors. It's a good thing, and we do this most every summer to rotate out pastors because we're not called to any person other than to the person of Jesus. So it's good for you to hear from different, different people the word preached. Um, and I'm thankful that I've been um, called on to do that this morning. Our, our anchor text this morning is in Proverbs 23. So if you want to turn there, um, there should be a Bible nearby you, or if you brought one, um, we're not going to read the entirety of it, but we're going to focus on um, today's folly, which is the folly of gluttony. So we are in Proverbs 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat. If you are given to appetite, do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Hear, my son, and be wise. I'm at verse 19 now. And direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and, the, and, will slumber, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Now, many of us during the recent pandemic turned to food, among other things, to deliver us from our suffering. Collectively, we've probably eaten not only more, but also differently from how we did before the virus disrupted our lives. But perhaps it's not a bad idea to look at something as consequential as COVID-19 to help us expose a spiritual issue. Now, based on the title alone, our summer series in Proverbs, Fight for Joy, Walking in Victory Over the Patterns of Sin, examining our transgressions shouldn't bring us down. As James pointed out to us in his prayer of confession this morning, we shouldn't just be there, but rather they should remind us and encourage us that because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and through his modeling of holiness and leading a sinful life, sinless life on earth, we should not live in defeat or even feel distressed. Jesus was victorious over all our sins, over all our struggles over all the things we find ourselves doing, even when we really don't want to do them. 
But often, when examining our own sin, we have a tendency not only to rightfully repent, but also to become mired in a conviction-fueled sorrow rather than moving on to celebration, rather than recognizing that Jesus has delivered us from the bondage of sin. Now, each of the seven follies that we find addressed in the book of Proverbs, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride, are sins that on the surface behave differently. But if we look beneath the surface at the heart attitudes, they reveal the same rebellious reasons for rejecting God's wisdom. In preparing for this sermon, it struck me that our current culture beckons us to actually embrace folly, entertaining us with stories of lust and wrath and calling us to sloth in pursuit of that very same entertainment, encouraging us to spending and consuming extravagance by sowing seeds of envy wherever advertising can be found. Myriad forms of pride are celebrated. And gluttony? Well, gluttony has become almost an art form. Consider that 70 years ago, when C.S. Lewis published Mere Christianity, he clearly could not have imagined how we would have elevated food to where it is today. And he was examining lust in this passage, but here's what he writes. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now, suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Consider that today we have whole television networks devoted solely to food preparation and to presentation. How often do we, when we're dining out, pause when our entrees or desserts arrive to snap a photograph to later post on social media? Not only does our food need to taste good, but it also needs to look amazing. And that can be just having a bit of fun, but it also can be a troubling sign. So today we're going to look at gluttony. Before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that in your loving kindness and perfect wisdom, you have crafted your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and justice, but also into your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, by whom your love has been poured out into our hearts. And finally, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might better understand your word, so that it might bring comfort to us and glorify you as we seek to follow you and become salt and light to those around us. 
We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. The call today, as we just read in Proverbs, is to hear and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Matt Hardy prayed with me earlier this morning, and he said this during his prayer. He said, we need to dismiss our inner defense attorneys and hear what Scripture has to instruct us. The Latin word for glutton literally means to gulp down. When the Bible speaks of a glutton, it never specifically addresses what a glutton has done or provides any other pointed description. Scripture simply gives us the general title of glutton and then says, don't be one. So it would serve us to consider what does a glutton look like. A simple definition of gluttony is that it is unrestrained overconsumption. Like the drinker who fills himself with drink and becomes drunk, gluttons fill themselves with food to capacity and beyond. And notice in that definition the word unrestrained. At the heart of a glutton is a lack of self-control. The ability or the desire to stop oneself. It is finally the sin of lax consumption. Thomas Aquinas said that gluttony denotes not any desire of eating or drinking or the amount, but the inordinate desire for or focus on food, leaving the order of reason wherein the good of moral virtue consists. Much more recently, Chris Donato writes that Two mistakes accompany most discussions on gluttony. The first is it only pertains to those with a less than shapely waistline. The second is that it always involves food. In reality, it can apply to toys, television, entertainment, sex, or relationships. It's about an excess of anything. With that in mind, Augustine wrote in his confessions, it is no uncleanness in food that I fear, but the uncleanness of greed. Yet interestingly, Scripture begins and ends with food. After God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, he told them to eat from the beautiful buffet he had prepared in advance of creating them. On the opposite end of Scripture, we find history reaching its crescendo at the marriage of the Feast of the Lamb, the ultimate union of Christ and his bride, the church. In between, we read about numerous feasts centered around worship, thanksgiving, and celebration. In fact, we know that Jesus fed thousands of people at one time, more than once. So food, in and of itself, isn't a bad thing. Scripture, it's safe to say, is not anti-food or anti-drink. But while the sin of gluttony frequently involves food, it's not really about food. Rather, it's about taking a good thing God has provided for us and somehow making it the thing. It's about worshiping a created thing at the expense of worshiping the creator. With that in mind, it's important to point out that equating gluttony with, an, with overeating can and often does minimize the role desire plays in our lives. Now, Scripture points to and provides several examples of the consequences 
of gluttony. Here are a few. Gluttony was actually involved in the first transgression. Gluttony led to the fall of mankind, separating us from God and ushering in a world of sin, misery, and death. A little bit later on in Genesis, we read of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And most of us, when the city of Sodom is brought up, certain specific sins come to mind. But in Ezekiel 16, we read that one of the primary indictments against Sodom was identified as the excess of food. Now, Sodom, as we know, stands throughout time as a sobering example of God's judgment, his righteous judgment, on the wicked. In addition, following their exodus from Egypt, God graciously provided manna as daily sustenance for the Israelites in the wilderness. And when they complained about a lack of meat, God promised to send them so much quail that they would eat it until, quote, it came out of their nostrils. This is what God actually said. You are going to eat quail until it comes out of your nostrils. Fittingly, oh, I should mention that while they were eating that meat, the Lord struck them down with a plague, and fittingly, the name of the place was called Kibroth Hatava, which means graves of craving. Graves of craving. Later in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul warns that drunkards, liquid gluttons, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So gluttony is clearly something we should consider. And the early church fathers definitely thought it was something they, that we should consider, and they identified five forms or five expressions of gluttony. And I have to say that while preparing for this this week, I resembled most of these categories. So let's take a look. First, eating too soon or eating impulsively. Being mentally consumed with what you will eat next is gluttony. Think about Esau for a minute who sold his birthright for a pot of stew that he thought he couldn't live without immediately. It's a pretty substantial trade-off. Second, eating too sumptuously. Focusing too much on the quality of food draws our attention away from the creator to the creation. The Israelites in the wilderness craved meat, fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic that they had left behind while they were slaves in Egypt. The manna God provided apparently didn't live up to the delicacies that the Israelites recalled from their days in bondage. So they complained. How often do we complain about God's good provision? The next is eating too much. As previously mentioned, Sodom was guilty of, among other things, excess of food. Then we have eating too daintily. That's not a word I generally use in the 21st century or know anybody else who does, but essentially it's talking about picky eaters who might idolize food preparation or they might idolize not partaking of certain foods. You can find this referenced in 1 Timothy chapter 4. And finally, eating too eagerly. The Israelites 
learned that God can judge faster than we can eat when they died while the meat was still between their teeth. So eating too impulsively, too sumptuously, too much, too daintily, and too eagerly are the categories that the fathers of the old church pointed out as gluttony. So gluttony viewed simply as overeating then doesn't suffice. For many of us, gluttony shows up as self-righteousness. Jonathan Bowers put it this way, obsessing over a particular diet, anxiously counting calories, disdaining certain foods as morally suspect, it's all a variation on the same idolatrous theme. Food has become a god. Gluttony, therefore, is food worship displayed in both excessive eating and in pharisaical avoidance. Now, to be clear, Bowers is not referring to those with food allergies or other medical conditions that require special dietary restrictions, but rather like the Pharisees, we can revel publicly or privately in our perceived superior eating habits. Augustine said we're all characterized by something he called concupiscence, an ardent, unusually sensual longing. But it's not the longing that's the problem. The problem is that our desires are disordered. We've been created with a longing that can be satisfied only by our creator, but in our rebellion, we try to satisfy that longing or craving with lesser things. And we have from the beginning. In Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve that, may, that they may eat from anything in the garden. Now just for a minute, pause and think about the lavishness of what God had provided and pronounced good in advance of the people he created for their pleasure and for his pleasure. Think about what that must have been like. Their taste buds were uniquely dialed into what he had provided for them. And he said, you can eat of anything in the garden except one thing. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do, you will surely die. And yet, after listening to the serpent's lie, they're willing to risk their lives in order to satisfy a sudden impulsive craving for the one thing that was forbidden. In Genesis 3 we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired and make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice Eve's threefold longing here. First, she viewed the tree as good for food. Then, as a delight to the eyes. And finally, as a pathway to wisdom. Gluttony is about more than overeating. The opposite of gluttony is self-control. Like Adam and Eve, our desires are disordered. They hope to satisfy their longing with something other than God. We might be tempted to think that humanity's fall would have been precipitated by something more weighty, such as murder. But that was not the case. 
being drawn to something seemingly as innocuous as a piece of fruit brought death into the perfection of creation. Adam and Eve's temptation and ours is really about appetite. Clearly, gluttony is a big deal. And here are at least three reasons why. First, gluttony robs, gluttony robs God of the glory due him. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Here we see the primary danger of gluttony. It puts food in the place of God. Gluttony presents the chief end of man as an overflowing table and a full stomach. Hunger becomes the great enemy, and the pantry serves as the temple where we find our deliverance. Hebrews 12 admonishes us to not be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, and afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, was rejected, for he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. So the first danger of gluttony is that it robs God of the glory due him. Second, gluttony can cause us to hate our brother. It's often tied to injustice. When a person consumes more food than he should in certain contexts, someone else might go hungry. Our appetites have social consequences. And this was true in the case that Jesus tells us about with the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. Jesus describes the rich man as clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And in contrast to this man, Jesus tells us of Lazarus, a poor man covered with sores who desired to be fed by what fell from the rich man's table. The rich man's response to Lazarus appears at best to be indifference. While alive, the rich man ignored Lazarus' sufferings, and after he dies, when he cries out to be rescued from eternal torment, he asks God to send Lazarus on a mission to warn his brothers. Even in his suffering, the rich man regards Lazarus as little more than an errand boy rather than as a child of God. Gluttony insists on satisfying our physical cravings, even if others have to go hungry at our expense. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul admonishes some of the church, some in the church, for going ahead with their meals, while others in the church remain hungry. So gluttony can destroy relationships. A third reason gluttony is dangerous is because it leads to self-indulgence. Tim Keller points to the Old Testament example of Achan to underscore the depth of our appetites, the extent of our cravings. In Joshua 7, we find that one man has brought down God's judgment on the entire nation of Israel. Now, when God directed Israel to conquer the nations of Canaan, 
he expressly forbade them from keeping any of the spoils of war for themselves. The Lord was using Israel to judge the wickedness of Canaan and not as some imperialistic force. Any gains captured was to either be destroyed or dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle and later the temple. The conquest, the purpose of the conquest, was to bring glory to God, not to Israel. Disobeying this divine edict was punishable by death. But Achan knowingly was willing to risk everything to satisfy his longing, to satisfy his craving. And here's how he responded when he was confronted with his transgression. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinir, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Now notice Achan's response when he was confronted with his sin. He wasn't like, oh, is, did, did I do something wrong? Did I, I didn't really understand what the rules of engagement were. I, I'm, I'm going to die? Now, what Achan says is, it's true. I have sinned against God. Like David, years later, says in Psalm 51, it is against you and you alone that I have sinned. Yes, our sin has repercussions for other people around us, but ultimately all sin is against God. And Achan testifies to that when he's caught here. It's true, I have sinned against God. And like Adam and Eve, Achan knew exactly what he was doing. Achan saw, his heart coveted, despite the fatal consequences. Achan's gluttony took him a place to where his heart's desire was so strong that it overcame his conscience, it overcame his reason, it overcame his understanding, it overcame his fear of consequences, it overcame his self-interest. The nature of our heart's craving is that we desire to a place beyond where it is good for us. Achan and his family were executed as punishment for his sin. Functionally, Achan committed suicide because of his craving. Achan wasn't satisfied with God's good provision, and neither are we. Whenever you're raging, despairing, or anxious, perhaps it's because of an immoderate craving for something. Consider this. What is your response if you're addicted to certainty? What is your response if you're addicted to achievement, to independence, or to dependence? It's important to note that Aiken doesn't immediately succumb to temptation. Keller points out four steps involved in Aiken's downfall. First, Aiken said, I saw. The word saw here was better interpreted in the old King James where Aiken says, I beheld. 
Beheld goes far deeper than simply glimpsing at something. We know that throughout Scripture, God calls people to behold. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. So to behold means to focus intently, to gaze, to go beyond mere noticing. And in this case, in Achan's case, it meant to being open to a forbidden thing. Achan saw, he beheld. Next, Achan says, I weighed. It's kind of interesting. In the Hebrew, the word glory means physical weight and also spiritual importance. That word weighed. We have a similar word in English, matter. Matter can mean physical matter. We know that from our science classes. Or it can mean what is the issue that we are concerned with at the moment. What's the matter? The thing that weighs something is your imagination. Your imagination is the tongue of your soul. Achan set his imagination on beautiful things. He gave beautiful things glory, and whatever he glorified, he served. Which takes us to the next step in Achan's downfall, where Achan says, I coveted. A coveting actually means to worship and to adore. So he goes from looking to weighing, and oh, by the way, when he's weighing, that's literal. Notice what he says. He's talking about 200 shekels of silver. You don't just look and say, well, that looks like 5, five 10, 20 shekels of silver. He actually had to have interacted with this stuff that he took. 200 shekels of silver and 50 shekels of gold. Those are pretty specific weighings. So he weighed them, he coveted them, and finally, and this was the public manifestation of his sin, the ultimate manifestation, I took. I saw, I weighed, I coveted, and I took. Craving knows there's a glorifying apparatus at the center of our being, and it takes over and drives our lives. Solomon knew this. In Ecclesiastes, he writes, Wise men and fools alike spend their lives scratching for food, yet his appetite is never satisfied. How then do we resist those cravings? How do we fill that emptiness? The first step is to be aware of the object of your gaze. William Temple says, Your religion is what you do in your solitude, where your thoughts go most effortlessly when you're not forced to think based on your surroundings, when you have time to allow, allow your mind to wander, where does your mind go? What does your mind habitually go to? What do you most like to think about? What do you most enjoy daydreaming about? Some of you may be doing that right now. What gives you the most comfort to fantasize about? Temple says, whatever that is, that's your God. Your religion is what you do when you're in your solitude. Is it your family? Is it your home? Is it your career? Is it a romantic interest? Is it money? Is it your next meal? Whatever it is, that functionally is your God. 
Keller offers an additional diagnostic. He suggests that the unanswered, he suggests what he calls the unanswered prayer test. If you're praying for something and you say, Lord, this is what I've got to have. You can deny me anything and I'll stay by you. But if you deny me this, we're through. I'm out of here. That's your God. In other words, this thing, whatever it is, is non-negotiable for you, but God is. But confronting idolatry in the negative isn't going to be enough. Hebrews 12 says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him. Again, the title of this sermon series is Fight for Joy, Walking in Victory Over the Patterns of Sin. We can walk in victory because we have a Savior who identifies with us. I'm going to say that again. We can walk in victory because we have a Savior who identifies with us. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We read in Matthew 4 that after Jesus was baptized and revealed to be the Son of God, that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The passage says that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus was understandably hungry. I can't even imagine what fasting for 40 days and 40 nights feels like, but you can be sure he was an emaciated man, which probably dispels any thoughts that Jesus was a man of any kind of girth because in his three-year ministry, much of that would have been recovering from 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. Jesus was understandably hungry, and similarly to how he tempted Adam and Eve, Satan entices Jesus with the prospect of food, suggesting that Jesus prove his deity by commanding stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus' response? Well, he quotes Scripture. He said, it is written, this is from Deuteronomy, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Those who are called by his name are not lost to gluttony, any more than we are lost to any other sin. Jesus knows our temptation to distort God's good gift of food, and he withstood the very same temptation. Do you know there are only two times in the New Testament where the charge of gluttony is made? And on both occasions, they're made against the same individual. That individual would be Jesus. His enemies accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Now, because we know Jesus was sinless, these accusations clearly were false, but they do show us that unlike John the Baptist, Jesus was not an ascetic avoiding bread and wine. Instead, Jesus himself declared that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus is willing to bear the shame and scorn reserved for gluttons. He feasted with sinners and he called them to repentance. 
19th century Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers in reaction to the extreme poverty that he saw that permeated his, his society, poverty often brought about by the pursuit of folly, wrote an essay titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In it, Chalmers had witnessed firsthand the addictions, the desperation, and the violence in his community. And here's where he landed. He said, the only way you can ever release the soul from the power of a beautiful object is to give it a more beautiful object. No one sends out of duty. We sin because it's more pleasant or less painful than the way of righteousness. So bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction. It's broken by a more compelling joy. The poet Don, John Donne, who wrote more than 500 years ago, recognized this truth. Here's what he wrote. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves me weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed to your enemy. Pay real close attention here, but I am betrothed to your enemy. Divorce me, untie me, or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you, enthrall me, shall never be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. That's a pretty scandalous thing to think. He's calling on Jesus to ravish him. Jesus is the beautiful thing you must learn to be ravished by. Jesus is the new affection who has the expulsive power to drive out our old ones. And the necessary response is to glorify him, to confess your sins, repent, and feast on him in the place that he has prepared for you in his kingdom. Gluttony looks to food to satisfy some deeper craving, whether it be for comfort, for purpose, or control, but God has called gluttons to a real feast. Here's what he says in Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. What's God saying here? God's saying, find me sweet. Find me tasty. Find me delectable. The only way to fight gluttony is to be captured by something far more delicious and more delightful than that for which we are gluttonous. To that end, we need to confess the self-glorification that we express with food. We need to call this sin what it is and recognize that God hates it. We must also see that we will never be satisfied when we seek our hope 
in food. Sin never delivers on the lies it promises. Our idols always let us down. That's the bad news of the gospel. But the good news, the good news is this. Christ came to save gluttons. He came so close to tax collectors and sinners that he himself was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And if you're guilty of gluttony, know that Jesus came to save people like us. He died for gluttons. He feasted with them, and he fed them, and he satisfied them. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing soul and fill the hungry with good things. We also might consider fasting. Practiced both in Scripture and by the church throughout history, fasting can help us focus and turn our gaze from the created thing to the Creator. But ultimately, ultimately, contrary to what some might think, the cure for gluttoning is not fasting, it's feasting. It's feasting on Him. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the expulsive power of a better thing. And that better thing is you, Jesus. We thank you that as we wander, as we seek our salvation in lesser things, that your word calls us back calls us from our folly to your good truth. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen.